Oh, welcome and good morning, Trinity Bible Church, as well as those who are visiting. Uh, we are continuing in our time in Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Thank you. I thought it was very kind of Joe, who hasn't been here for a year last week, to make sure the first thing he did was make fun of me. <laughs> Not minding the fact that I, 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 the next week, but I won't. Grace and mercy is what we're talking about in this epistle. Uh, we are in chapter 5. Uh, Bo and, and Stuart took you through the majority of the book this summer. Uh, and, and if you wanted to lay out Galatians, it would be kind of like an introduction of would be chapter one and half of chapter two. The rest of chapter two and three and four is where you would see like um, Paul's main theological thrust, what the main teaching point that he wanted uh, the Galatians to understand, predominantly that there is a dynamic difference, a, a unbelievable difference between the law and the gospel. And so he's emphasizing what it means to, for them to turn back to the law or turn to the law if they were Gentiles coming to the faith, rather than embracing the gospel. It had, it had to do with everything, had to do with righteousness, had to do with justification. Are you justified by your works, by your adherence to the law, by your perfect following of the law? Are you made righteous then by the righteous works of you following God's law? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. Because you cannot. No one can. You, you look through all of the, the, the testimony of the New Testament when you have what's called the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. One of the things they're debating about is now that Gentile converts are coming to faith is whether or not they should be circumcised and follow the law. And Peter, the apostle, says, our forefathers and none of us have been able to do these things. And he calls it a yoke, a burden. A yoke, something you put on an animal. So Paul's fervent desire is for these Galatians who had first heard the gospel from Paul delivered to them as freedom. Meaning, those of you that believe and have faith have been moved by God, the Holy Spirit, from once having dead hearts and minds and eyes that were blind and ears that could not hear, opened by the power of the Holy Spirit and the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as such were adopted, whether you were Gentile or Jew, no matter what you were, it didn't matter. You are now in the household of God and heirs of glory, recipients of his righteousness and justified before God, justified before God by the work of Christ on the cross. And then the false teachers who followed Paul everywhere came along and told these this kind of new church or growing church in terms of, of their time, you all must also be circumcised if you are not. You must also follow the law. And then you are 
completed in Christ. So in those chapters in the middle part of the book and up till chapter, the end of chapter 4, Paul's explaining to them, you, you, you cannot go back, or if you are a Gentile of the faith, you cannot suddenly want to, to go and follow the law because, number one, you are casting off Christ. You are going back to the old rather than embracing the completeness of the new. <coughs> Excuse me. So now we, we enter in this time of five and six in, in, in the, this epistle where some people would, would call it uh, application, but, but I, that, that word kind of gets overused. Paul wants them to realize what he's taught, and the realization of that has to be played out in the way that they move forward from receiving this letter. Will they receive this letter, and by the Spirit of God, as they read it out loud in the congregation as it would have been done, Will they see the error of embracing Jesus plus anything makes you righteous? Jesus plus anything justifies you before God. In his hopes then that when they see the error and they turn back to the true gospel, we'll see these first words that this first line that he gives there to be free. So I'll be reading from verses 1 through 15 this morning. And that's what we'll be covering. After I read... <clears throat> the verses, I ask that uh, everyone would take a time uh, to pray silently to themselves. Consider the words that, that I'm reading. Consider your own uh, life. Consider your own approach towards God. If you're here and you, you don't know Christ, you're not a believer, you're not of the faith, I would ask you simply, listen, consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reading now from the epistle to the Galatians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Please take this time to pray.
Heavenly Father, as your covenant assembly, the church, gathers on this, the Lord's Day, we come to celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God. In full recognition that we were born sinful, and in our own nature, at all times, seek to rebel against God, set up our own autonomy, create gods after our own image, gods of convenience, gods of selfishness, and indulgence, in all the multiple ways we seek to worship anything other than the one true God. And that's the state of fallen humanity. But Lord, you sent your son, Jesus Christ. And he, the God-man, fulfilling the law in perfection, defeated sin and death on the cross, and proclaimed victory for those who he will call brothers and sisters, When he ascended back to his place, the right hand of the Father, the Father and the Son send God the Holy Spirit to indwell the faithful, to regenerate dead life, imbued with and empowered and sealed by God the Holy Spirit. Now your assembly meets and gathers together in union, in shared union with Christ through the Spirit to celebrate the works of Christ, to celebrate our freedom from sin and death and the works of the devil, not of any work of our own, but simply and only the work of Christ. And God, your people, though we're still sinful, waging war with ourselves, and so we come here on this Lord's Day to worship the Creator who is unchanging and perfect and holy, and we do so as those who have sinned. So your people come hurting. God, may you comfort your people today through your word. May you confront us in places that we have believed hidden from you, where we've created idols and worshipped other things, sins we have not confessed. God, I pray now people would be confessing those sins to you. God, and and through our continued time of, of this gathering in worship of you, may your name be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. In chapter 4, at the end, Joe preached last week, he uses an allegory of of a very well-known story of Abram and Sarai becoming Abraham and Sarah, who then would have the child of the promise, Isaac, but before that they have a child of slavery from Sarah's slave, Hagar. And Paul uses that to describe those who adhere to the law and those who are free in the gospel. And he uses that as kind of his final formulation to help them understand 
what they're wanting when they go back to the law, they're going back to slavery. Because earlier in chapter 4, he explicitly states, as he does in Romans 8 and elsewhere, Romans 2 and elsewhere, that, that the law leads to death. And so therefore, if the law leads to death, but you've been given freedom in Christ, then you're leaving life for death. You're leaving freedom for slavery. And so as he's now pushing this congregation, this last part of the letter, that's why the beginning of this chapter 5 is, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So his beginning salvo is freedom, for freedom, the sake of freedom, Christ has set us free. When you say freedom in the United States of America, what's the first thing you think of? The flag, wars fought in the past, a certain difference with the United States than with other countries of the past. And often that can get either lessened or amplified depending on what state you live in. So Texas happens to be a very freedom-happy state. Some of you have been here for a while are like, like what's he going to say? Is he going to insult my college? Is he gonna... No, I'm not. In... I'm... This is part of it. And yet, when people think of freedom, including Texans, how often are they thinking of it in the manner of the freedom that which Christ is explaining? Often when we're thinking about freedom is freedom to freedom of movement, freedom of autonomy, freedom for people to leave me alone. All those freedoms are held dear And yet none of them come close to what the author is talking about here. And so whatever imagery, whatever you've popped up with these words of freedom that have to do with the culture you live in, the time you were born, or whatever you've done in your life, you have to to get rid of those for this particular text. And every time you're talking about freedom in Christ, it has nothing to do with freedom of autonomy. It has nothing to do with freedom of people to leave you alone. I know that one sounds unnatural, but it's very near and dear to my heart. (laughs) Okay, time out. No one ever says amen or preach it when I exposit a text. But when I say freedom to leave me alone... I know I started it, but. (laughs) But what Paul's talking about is the way in which false teaching and false belief, that you have to think about the letter itself, the church itself. These Galatians had an apostle share the gospel with them. Someone who had been uniquely snatched out of history by God to serve in a role as apostle to the Gentiles. And by the power of the Spirit indwelling him, they came to faith 
through the election, predestinate, everything, everything else lies in it. But now, all it has taken is for other men to creep into the community and begin convincingly telling them, well, sure, Paul was right, but you also need to follow the law. And you Gentile men need to be circumcised in order that you're actually a part of the covenant community. And then they showed it to them in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And they're like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. Think about how easy it is to be drawn away by false teaching. And anything that adds to Christ, you are, as Paul is describing, you are fleeing or running to slavery. You are running to death. Now, for those who are always looking out for what might seem like an antinomian sermon or a sermon without the law, this is your day. But I, pro- I, honest, I, I hope you see that's not what's happening. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Slavery. Paul uses the next Greek phrase, stand firm, or to stand resolute, or, or be strong in where you're standing. He uses it throughout all of his epistles. The author of Hebrews uses it prolifically. The instance is simply like telling them that you have freedom, and then knowing the contrast of the teaching that they're receiving, which is, which is hurting their faith and their understanding of who Christ is and who they are. So then, therefore, affecting the way they think and live and act out their faith, which you can see all the way to the end of chapter 5, that bit about biting and devouring one another. Believing false teaching leads to despair. It also leads to bad behavior. Bad thinking, bad theology leads to bad practical theology. Living out your faith. And that's what he's dealing with now. So he's giving them this blanket Understand your freedom and stand firm in it. So look, he says in verse 2, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. He stops to say, if you accept circumcision, the sign of the old covenant, the seal of the old covenant that was a mark or a beginning of your justification before God. During the time of Christ, Paul in his own tradition and the Pharisees, they called the law the yoke of the law. Think about that. An instrument for an animal to drag fields and be dragged wherever it wants. And the Pharisees called the law, in a tongue-in-cheek manner, the yoke of the law, or the yoke of Moses. And yet circumcision was the first act of being justified. And Paul's telling them, in explicit language, you're not justified by your works. Your works are no good. No one can be justified by God unless they fulfill the entirety of the law. So unless you can fulfill the entire law without sinning, only then will you be justified. 
And then Jesus comes along, and what does he add to that? Oh, it's not, it's not just you are divorcing your wives. It's if you look on a woman with lust, you have committed adultery. Jesus is preaching the law to those who believe they can be justified by it. Oh, you want to be justified by the law? This is what it looks like. Fulfill not just the action, but the very thought. That's fulfilling the law. Who can do that? Do not covet. Ever looked at anything of your neighbors and you thought, that's kind of nice. Wish I had that. No one can fulfill the law. And when Jesus is preaching the law to the rich young ruler, that's precisely the point. I've done all these things from my youth. And Jesus isn't explaining to him that if he's obedient, he will be justified. Jesus is explaining to him, oh, really? Sell everything. And he goes away disgruntled because he had much. Why? Jesus, he was approaching Jesus so that he would prove to him that he was justified by his work. So Jesus goes, okay, keep doing more. Because that's the whole point. To fulfill the law, you have to do it in perfection. And it's impossible for sinful, broken humanity. And so when Paul is addressing this, he's like, if you're going back to that, if you believe you should be circumcised to be cut, and he's using this in a, in a clever way, he's obligated to keep the whole law, which no one can, then you are cut or severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Martin Luther makes a point in this in his commentary in Galatians, like this is the, the center of the understanding of, of the difference between the law and the gospel. If you want to be justified by the law, if you want to be justified by your works, you have cast grace aside. And you have told Christ, I can do it. This is the law. Do this or die. I've just explained by Christ's own explanation of a real fulfilling of the law that even the thoughts are sinful. The thoughts are a recognition of the brokenness of the heart. No one can do it. Only one did it. Do you see? You want to cut away yourself from the only one, the rescuer, the deliverer, the one who released you from bondage, the one who took your punishment on the cross, the one who defeated Satan, sin, and death for his glory and for the sake of those who would receive him by faith. Our problem is it sounds too simple doesn't it? All I have to do is believe. All I have to do is have faith. 
I don't have to do anything. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Don't, don't get it mixed up that somehow Paul's trying to tell them, yeah, there, you, you, you have to have good works and faith. You have to have this and that. Good works is something he's thinking of down the line. He's talking about the problem they're not understanding is how they're saved, how they've come to faith, how they're justified, how they are viewed before God. It's all grace. It's all God. You believed because God gave you the power to believe. You made a profession of faith because God indwelled you with the spirit and regenerated your heart and opened your eyes to the truth of who you are. God did that, not you. And so when you think on that and you go, oh, but why would he choose? Stop. Every single, I know there are several of you that come here on Sundays and can barely make it through the door. Who are wearing a mask because you don't want people to know that you're hurting. And when you take that and you convince yourself you are, that you are not worthy or that you are disobedient. And so you do, you, you, what you do instead of reminding yourself of all these things I've just said about who Christ is, instead of that, you remind yourself of all the wrong you've done. And you walk around with that like a trophy. But that's you preaching the law to yourself. I'm not doing it right. I'm not doing good enough. I'm just going to start changing things bit by bit. I'm going to start doing better. I'm going to start doing better. How's that going? It always goes back to the same place. So the disconnect is not, I need to work harder. The disconnect is you're not preaching the gospel to yourself. Christ has set me free. That doesn't mean you're not going to sin. You are going to sin. But your affections are not turned in the right direction. That's what Paul's trying to tell this church in Galatia. You have forgotten Christ. You're cutting yourself off from him. You want to be circumcised? You want to be cut? When you do that, you're preaching the law to each other and to yourself, and you're casting Christ aside. And his reminder is, none of you are going to make it then. None of you will be justified by your own works. Impossible. And five, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. He's acknowledging something. Through the Spirit, by faith, Spirit's given to you freely. The faith comes from the work of the Spirit. And what do we do? The faithful, those who have the Spirit, those who have professed their faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Whatever situation is driving you towards the law, whatever sin that remains 
burdensome to you that you cannot relinquish or release, and you keep preaching the law to yourself. Paul's formula is we are here indwelt by the Spirit, professors of faith, recipients of of righteousness, not our own, and in all of those benefits that Christ has bestowed on us, we hope. It's the difference between the rich young ruler and the tax collector who simply says, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus points to the work of God, the work of Christ on the cross, the victor, the conquering king who we wait for, who we long for his return, who Paul in another later letter will say, who will save me from this body of death, this agonizing reality of being a sinner and a saint. And where all of our hope lies is Christ. Christ in what he's done in the past. Christ in the here and now in this life. And Christ in the future when he comes and gathers us to him. He points to the hope of Christ. He He switches things up here in verse 7. In 6, he's making this push on this point about freedom. And then look at what he writes. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This is a... When you think of running as an adult, and the older you get, it's like once I get like a mile in, I start feeling pretty good. At least for my age and shape that I'm in. But the first mile and the warm-up are generally centered around me talking to myself about your sore knees don't get to tell you what to do. That kind of thing. But there's not a lot of joy in it. Some of you get joy out of running. I get it. But if you ever, if you have children or you remember being a child, and not, not on a day when it's 187 outside, but on a nice day in your backyard or in a field, watching your kids run around and play. It might not even be a very organized game, just running and smiling, and it seems like they can run forever. Freedom. They have no worries. They have no concerns. They just know they want to run and play. And so when Paul uses this analogy of you were running well, you were running this race in freedom. And you were doing it in a manner that exhibited your hope that he mentions earlier. In chapter 4, he mentions at some point that they showed joy because he asks what happened to it. You were living this Christian life with unfettered joy and hope. 
Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. He's acknowledging something. Something about the way their countenance. The burden of now being told the Christian faith also adhering to the law would obviously put a yoke or a burden around anyone. I thought I was free, but now I'm told I'm a slave again. In the same manner, you were running well. You were running with freedom. What hindered you? What tripped you? What injured your Achilles tendon? False teaching. And not false teaching, oh, oh, I'm watching this guy on TBN. I don't know what station that is, but there was church stuff going on. It sounded pretty good. He started slapping people in the face, and they said they were healed of something. Not the slap mark, but they were healed. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not, it's not always that implicit or that easy. You, you can teach falsely to yourself, as I mentioned earlier. You can preach the law to yourself. You can allow whatever's happening in life to weigh you down so much. And before long, it's been so long since you've reminded yourself, no, I'm free in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's freed me. I have his righteousness. He's even taken my guilt. Have you thought of that? Don't raise your hands, just don't do anything. How many of you struggle with guilt? I'm willing to bet it's a lot. Most people. It's one of the things that's mentioned most that Christ took from you. Guilt of your sin. If there's anything Satan wants from you, it is for you to sit and be miserable, woe is me, what have I done? And meanwhile, Paul is screaming from the scriptures, be free, run unhindered this Christian life, and you are going to fail, and you are going to trip up, keep running, hold fast to your joy and your hope in Christ, keep going. Because you are royalty, an heir with Christ. Quickly now through this next part. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. There he's just talking about, again, this false teaching. Leaven is often uses that. It's a little bit put in a whole lump and it spreads everywhere as he's kind of laying the groundwork for where this ends in 14 and 15, is that this little bit of, of, un, of kind of moving away or this little bit of teaching about Jesus plus anything kind of spreads through all of this church, whoever would receive this church, and all of the churches in Galatia and kind of things. And so Paul is having to address it that, understand, this persuasion is not from the one who calls you, who is Christ, who is the who is who is Savior, who is Redeemer, who is the one who has, whose righteousness you wear as your own. Paul even mentions his hope, his confidence, that after receiving this letter, they will, they will turn back to the gospel. 
And he even mentions that he hopes whoever is leading them astray, they're going to pay for it. In 11, he writes, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The best way that people have understood that verse throughout history is that evidently whoever these false teachers were, were saying they were preaching the same thing Paul was preaching. Or they would say, well, Paul believes this. Paul is preaching the same thing. And so he asks a question, if that's true, then why am I being persecuted? What he means is, if that's true, why are Jews still trying to kill me? Because if I was preaching circumcision, everything would be fine. But he's, he's alluding to the fact that he's persecuted for the cross that he's preaching. I don't think some of you have been waiting for this verse, but you're probably wondering where I'm going to go or what I'm going to do with it. There's children in the room. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I've thought this week how I talk about this. And I see some of the children are sleeping, so that was my plan. (laughs) Circumcision was obviously a physical act for boys who were eight days old. And it was something that was done so that they would be marked into the covenant. And it was the beginning of justification for the pious Jew. And now what would happen is grown men who were Gentiles and so were outside of the the physical fellowship of Israel were now being told as Christians by these teachers, you've got to be circumcised too. And Paul has already said twice in the book, and he'll say again after this chapter, circumcision means nothing. Circumcision was a, a temporary thing. Even in the Old Covenant, the verse that we're talking about, God, God writes about what he wants is circumcision of the heart. Someone whose heart is cut by their own sin. Whose heart is moved by the holiness of God. And so in this act of constantly being obsessed with circumcision, he hopes that they make themselves eunuchs. And people will generally laugh about that uncomfortably. Because they're like, whoa, Paul's being really dramatically sarcastic. No, he's not. He's making a point about the law. Because a eunuch was cast outside of the fellowship of Israel. They could not enter temple. His whole point, just like Jesus' point with the rich young ruler, you want to go according to the law? This is what I hope for you then. Because if you want to live by the law... You should be cast outside of temple. You should be cast outside of fellowship with God because he views these false teachers as predatory, as wolves, as operatives of Satan, if you will. And so when he's telling them, I wish that they would emasculate themselves with their obsession with circumcision, is to simply say, I wish that they would cast themselves outside. They would be outside of this fellowship if that's the law that they want to preach and teach and follow to the T. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
what happens when the church forgets why they're the church? What happens when the gospel is put aside? The freedom in Christ is forgotten. There's two ways Paul's mentioned here. One is called antinomia, means without the law. Means one way you could read this is, or people throughout history have read it, is simply that the law, we're done with the law, and we're free in Christ, live how you will. And whatever you do, if you sin, God, God forgives you, be joyful. The other side says, no, not only... Yes, we are, we are free in Christ, but we must uphold each other to the highest standards of the law. And then the checklists come out. And the eyes pay attention to everyone else but themselves. And then every meeting between someone like that and yourself is often a lecture. Paul's way as it comes to good works and the gospel, he gives one example here. Just as there's other areas in, that Paul will use to kind of say, here's the main place you should look. Uh, when we were doing Titus on Wednesday nights, uh, I, I called the family the proving ground when it came to church leadership. Where does Paul mostly point people to look? The individual's household, their wife, their children, the way they interact, the way they act. Well, here, Paul is going to take this scale of true orthodoxy, of freedom in Christ. No works at all. None. You are redeemed, and in every single aspect of your redemption, you literally had nothing to do with it. Your profession was moved by the Spirit of God. And yet, now that you're of the faith, you are called to good works. Even says in another letter that they're prepared beforehand for you. And so the person who is holding fast to their hope, the person who is keeping their joy and running the race unhindered, the first proving ground for the Christian man and woman is the church. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Freedom in Christ puts you in a fellowship or a community of faith. Sons and daughters of the Most High God. And Paul says, serve one another. The spiritual gifts he lists in the book of 1 Corinthians is to serve the church, to serve one another. Other places it's called like meeting each other's needs, 
we use weird phrases today like do life with each other. If you like that, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be dismissive with my hand wave. But the reality is, is that we're supposed to be ministering, primarily practicing our gifts on each other. But if we forget our joy, and if we forget who we are in Christ, and where our righteousness comes from, what happens? He uses the phrase, bite and devour one another. The imagery is supposed to be kind of gross. Like the bickering, the fighting, and things like that. You begin devouring each other. And then he warns them, you're going to consume each other. It's a side effect of not holding fast to your freedom. Not running unhindered the race that you have as a Christian. This is no small thing. Churches disappear from infighting. Disappear. Relationships are sundered never to come back again. Sometimes over the most minor of issues. My hope is that for you, as was mentioned last week during the Lord's Supper, if there are relationships in this church that are sundered, I pray you try to reconcile. If you've been hurt by somebody in this church and you've just carried it around, your responsibility is to go to that individual. How does Paul take such an immeasurably large thing where he kind of goes over the whole scope of, of the history of salvation, the, the dynamic between law and the gospel, life and death, rescue in Christ, deliverer, conqueror, We are recipients of justification and his righteousness and future glory. And then Paul brings it all down to love your neighbor as yourself. Do not bite and devour one another. See, now he's talking about good works. If you wondered where it was. being about the work of the church, gathered together as a sacred assembly of Jew, Greek, Gentile, doesn't matter what your past is, doesn't matter who you were or all those things. All that matters is that if you are a believer in Christ, you are a new creation in him, bound together with everyone else in your local assembly by the Holy Spirit to minister to one another. And that's not a rebuke, that's a plea. And also an encouragement that this church does an amazing job of caring for each other. But this church also is marked historically by breaking of relationships. And so while I commend you on one, I charge you on the other. 
run unhindered the race of this life, reminded of the glory you will receive in future glory and hope, and run by the power of the Spirit as you hold fast to Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and mercy. God, may our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ strengthen us, sustain us, empower us. Let us stand firm that Christ is our Redeemer, our righteousness, our justification. Lord, let us be strengthened by this. Let us strengthen one another in our lives. Lord, let us be about the work of the gospel ministry in our lives. God, I pray that for each of us that calls ourselves in Christ, that we would see the opportunities you bring before us to share our life and the gospel with others. God, that we would bear one another's burdens Hold fast confidentiality when those burdens are shared. Lifting each other up in prayer. Talking with each other. Sharing scripture with one another in encouragement. God, if there are broken relationships, at the very least that there would be a a reconciling of understanding. Hearts bent on glorifying you, God. I pray now as we end this time of worship, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. We thank you for the glory of Christ. We thank you that we will share in it through no work of our own, but to glory of God alone. In Christ's name, amen.